The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. On the podcast this week, Svetlana Mornets explains why Ukrainians can't trust Putin's hollow promises. James Heal reads his politics column on Rishi's January Blues. And Theo Hobson talks about the joys of middle-aged football. Up first, Svetlana Mornets. Ukraine's parliament will soon vote on much-needed conscription regulations which would draft an extra half a million recruits into the army. The categories of eligible men will be expanded, the draft age will be lowered from 27 to 25, and any man caught attempting to evade it will face harsh sanctions or imprisonment. Volodymyr Zelensky has stopped talking about victory coming anytime soon. His New Year message was grim. Everyone must either fight or help through work. Ukrainians are braced for another year of war. But talk of peace or compromise is still seen as code for a surrender which would reward rather than punish Vladimir's Putin atrocities, sit ground and give him the opportunity to come back for the rest later. There is negligible public support for any type of deal. How can we tell? While it is unusual for opposition voices to be heard on TV, which Zelensky effectively controls, there is still free expression on social media. And it's rare to see Ukrainians saying they should cede the occupied territory in exchange for an end to the bloodshed. After all, we have seen before what happens when we compromise with Russia. We know how it ends. In 2014, Ukraine was forced to agree to the peace of the Minsk ceasefire, after Russian forces massacred hundreds of unarmed Ukrainian soldiers retreating from the encircled city of Ilovaisk. Stunned by the losses, the then-President Petro Poroshenko agreed to freeze the conflict by accepting Russia's terms. Crimea was ceded. Putin used this win to pause, rearm and then launch a full-scale war. And what would the partition look like? Putin has amended the Russian constitution to claim four regions – Donetsk, Kherson, Luhansk and Zaporizhia. But his forces occupy only parts of each. Two large regional cities are still free. Kherson was liberated, while Zaporizhia, with 800,000 citizens, is far from under Russian control. But would we hand the rest over to Russia to feed Putin's constitutional decree? This is not just a battle over territory, but for the people who live there under Russian regime and cultural cleansing. At his end-of-year press conference, Putin pledged to wage war until Russia achieves its goals, demilitarization and a neutral status for Ukraine. This is patently absurd. How can Ukraine be neutral? If there is anything that could potentially sway Ukrainians to contemplate territorial concession, it would be NATO membership. Not in 10 years, but now. Before there can be any serious talk of a ceasefire, Ukraine needs guarantees that Putin won't rearm and return for more. He routinely reneges on promises, as he did in Minsk in 2014 and following the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, where Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for a supposedly cast-iron promise of security. Ukrainians trusted Russia's promise in Budapest. 
By the time of Minsk, we didn't. And we never will again. Why would anyone ever believe Putin, given his track record? I sometimes read in the foreign press how senior figures in Kiev are talking seriously about a peaceful land deal. I follow this quite closely and know of only one prominent Ukrainian who says so. Alexei Arestovich, and once popular blogger who has long been banished from Zelensky's circle of advisors. He spends his time bravely criticizing Zelensky from abroad, with an eye on the next presidential elections. Even if more politicians are privately considering concessions, they don't dare talk about publicly. If they did, they would lose the support of the electorate. What if Western support wavers? Ukraine will still keep fighting. The Defense Ministry has been boosting the domestic production of weapons and investing in joint defense enterprises with allies. The enemy will feel the wrath of domestic production. Our weapons, our equipment, artillery, our shells, our drones, our naval greetings to the enemy, and at least a million Ukrainians FPV drones, said Zelensky in his New Year speech. He will aim to secure at least one significant victory on the front line this year, to convince allies that the war effort is not in vain. If that is not enough, and he is forced into talks, he will use whatever leverage is available to ensure that Ukraine doesn't emerge defeated. If this year ends in more slaughter, no military progress, and with Donald Trump being elected on a pledge to end American aid, it is possible that there may be a change in the public mood. But for now, defeating among Ukrainians is almost unanimous. We fight on. That was Fitlona Monietz. Next, James Heal. Rishi Sunak will start the year as he means to go on, spending more time in key marginal seats, telling ordinary voters how he is helping them by cutting tax, taming inflation and curbing welfare. The accuracy of his claims is open to question. Both tax and welfare numbers are still rising, but the idea is that selected audiences, rather than combative journalists, will ask the questions. Major had his soapbox, Sunak has his live stream. While the interrogators might have changed, questions remain about Sunak's message for voters. One minister admits to being baffled by the recent flurry of confusing resets which seem to lack any common thread. Sometimes number 10 emphasises change, at other times continuity is stressed instead. Will the next election centre on a fifth Conservative term or a new age of Sunak? Does the Prime Minister represent a refresh or more of the same? At times, it seems even he is not sure. Last October, for example, he told his party conference that he would end a run of 30 years of failed politics. Six weeks later, he exhumed David Cameron and made him foreign secretary. Sunak promised honesty, not obfuscation, in a speech on Net Zero, yet talk of telling hard truths is difficult to sustain when he claims to have cleared an asylum backlog that stands at almost 99,000 claimants. Aides complain of not knowing whether they'll be fighting a 2015 or a 2019-style campaign. Are we the establishment or an insurgency? asks one. No issue better demonstrates this than the Rwanda bill, which is expected to return to the Commons in a fortnight's time. The concern on the left of the party is that it will breach international law and renege on the UK's global commitments. For those on the right, and for Robert Jenrick, who resigned as immigration minister in protest at the legislation's leniency, it isn't robust enough and risks failure, like the two bills which preceded it. Party whips managed to keep the warring tribes together before Christmas, but battle will resume shortly when the bill returns to Parliament. Jenrick's successor, Michael Tomlinson, has been tasked with brokering a deal that avoids a case of the January Blue on Blues. Two key areas will be the focus of right-wing MPs, such as the New Conservatives, the right of individual migrants to appeal their deportation, and the power for ministers to ignore injunctions issued by Strasbourg judges under the European Convention on Human Rights. 
The latter power is dependent on ministerial discretion, with right-wingers fearful that any such use in practice would be blocked by Victoria Prentice, the Attorney-General, and a member of the One Nation group of Tory MPs, seen by some as the Conservative left. They want the Rwanda Bill to be rewritten to allow ministers to ignore any ECHR injunctions rather than just specific ones. The backdrop to the Tories' infighting over the bill is Labour's 18-point poll lead, one of the biggest gaps that any modern opposition has ever opened over a government at this point in the election cycle. By some calculations, if today's polls reflected tomorrow's election result, just 150 of the 350 sitting Tory MPs would survive. Any Conservative with a majority of less than 10,000 is extremely vulnerable, and just over half of the 25-strong new Conservative group are defending such seats. They're fighting not just for their party, or what they regard as their own political survival. Number 10 says it's risky to toughen up the Rwanda bill because Rwanda itself has said it won't accept any migrants sent under a scheme that breaks from international law. So why fight for it? The answer for many is that they need to tell their Red Wall voters that they tried. Why should they go quietly into the night to face electoral suicide? Asks one in their camp. Should the Rwanda plan end up central to the Tory election campaign, it is probable that, just like in 1997 with membership of the Euro, some candidates will break from the official line and urge Britain's withdrawal from the ECHR. The hope would be to turn the issue into Brexit Mark II. Until recently, Number 10 was able to say, who else are right-wing voters going to turn out for? It seems that, years after Nigel Farage's retirement from frontline politics, there is a new answer. The Reform Party, led by Richard Tice. For every 2019 Tory voter choosing Labour at the next election, there is another who now says they will vote for Reform, according to the sufologist Sir John Curtis. Polls put Reform on about 9% of the vote, just shy of the Liberal Democrats, 11%, and ahead of the Greens on 6%. If realised, that could cost the Tories 35 seats. Name recognition is the party's biggest problem, so Reform is reprising the time-honoured tricks of the UKIP playbook, wealthy donors, talker defections, and boosterish press conferences in the familiar haunt of Westminster's Hilton Hotel. Tice has pledged to have no mercy for the Tories, no standing-down candidates to aid their chances, as the Brexit party did for Boris Johnson in 2019. With Britain out of the European Union and Jeremy Corbyn evicted from the stage, no such entreaties to unite the right are forthcoming this time around. Things could become even worse for the Tories if Farage swaps his GB News microphone for the stump. One ally suggests that he has one last great campaign left in him, and that if he were to return to politics as a Reform Party leader, it would be out of a sense of duty. Within the Conservative fold, there are questions as to how much Ben Houchen and Andy Street will distance themselves from the party leadership as they seek to return their respective mayoralties of Tees Valley and the West Midlands in May. Things may very well start to fall apart. The path to victory is steep and narrow, warned Tory HQ in its New Year's Day message to supporters. How steep? Bookmakers now have the odds of a Conservative majority at 12 to 1. At this stage, it's a bet that not many Tories would be inclined to take. That was James Heal. And finally, Theo Hobson. I can tell when my life's going okay. My stray thoughts are not about what a loser I am, but about what a terrible footballer I am. Why didn't I shoot when I had that chance? Why did I pass to the opposition? And, oh dear, I wonder how Diego's knee is. For almost a decade I've been playing football on Saturday mornings in a local park in London. For the first few years I was a fair-weather visitor, shy about it. I'm not much of a joiner, and I don't have much chat about the transfer window, so I felt awkward and almost stopped going. A couple of others were middle-aged and rusty like me, so they probably didn't really want another old guy getting in the way. But I gradually felt that they didn't mind me being there, that I was a valid part of the mix. It's a couple of steps up from jumpers for goalposts. 
its plastic self-assembly goalposts for goalposts and fluorescent bibs for one of the teams. One of the old guys, Keith, brings the kit. Recently, he asked everyone for a fiver for some new stuff. That's all I've ever paid in ten years. There's a pool of about 40 men. In the early days, a brave young woman sometimes played. You sign up by WhatsApp during the week and there's room for about 26 people. If there are more than 20, we make three teams, which is nice in the summer as it gives one a breather. Only once or twice have the requisite 16 failed to enrol and only once do I remember it being full when I wanted to play. About half a student age, a few barely out of school. Some are seriously good. A few can dribble right through a defence or tee up a shot with a deft juggle touch. There's a pair of brothers from Kosovo who seem to me to be worth the attention of a Premier League scout. And there are a handful more whose skills are sometimes jaw-dropping. Part of the pleasure of playing is just watching others, even if it does mean being nutmegged for the third time that day. London's diversity is fully reflected. Most people are black or brown. There's a Mo, an Ibrahim, a Nitesh, and a few with African origins and ancient names, Ishmael, Abraham, and Joel. This is like being in the Bible, said Greg once. Greg is the group's proud founder. He's a geezer, is Greg. Don't tell the missus what a bender he was on last night, that sort of thing. He's an estate agent, but keen to defy the stereotype. Don't tell head office, etc., he enjoys being the father figure to the youngsters, tearing them off a strip if they're late, but in a semi-ironic way, aware there's nothing much at stake. Or maybe there is. Once there was a near fight, a row over a foul led to some nasty insults being thrown about, as well as offers to take it outside, as it were. The two men stormed off in separate directions, and it was suggested that the one deemed chiefly responsible for the ugly scene be banned. But Greg said no, he's bloody well going to come back and shake the other guy's hand and learn to be less of a prick. I admired him for that. There's one rather tough guy of whom I'm a little nervous. He seems to barge me a bit when there's a corner and looks like he wants to call me a posh idiot. I think he'd like to meet me in a different context, for example in a pub. I always hope I don't accidentally foul him. Talking of which... There's a tricky grey area in games like this. Sliding tackles are frowned upon. Yes, they're part of the game when it's played seriously, but at this level the risk of injury isn't worth it. Therefore, although I clearly won the ball, it was wrong of me to slide in on Diego last week. I felt bad as he hobbled off home. I still feel bad. Do we start by picking teams? Isn't that a form of schoolboy humiliation? Thankfully, the selection process is politely veiled. A couple of captains are chosen, they have a private conference, and a minute later someone chucks me a bib, or doesn't, thank God. I'm not the sort of writer who offers a moving final paragraph on the mental health benefits of understated male bonding camaraderie. These things are hard to gauge. Did football help me through my depressed phase a couple of years ago? I turned up less regularly and was even less chatty than usual. For a couple of hours it took my mind off my mind. But maybe it also gave me a sense that it was all right to be quiet and distant. 
I was still accepted and my teammates still said well played. My advice to middle-aged doublers in football is this, don't be shy. Those lads in the park might be nippier than you ever were, but don't assume that they don't want you to join them. Get stuck in and know again that wonderful boyhood feeling of washing caked mud from tired legs. And that's everything for this week. But if you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the articles in full and many more. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. Bye.